1: and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House!
0: Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people, we're the most loyal people.
2: This week, on a very special episode of Barstool Politics, the Supreme Court makes some tough decisions.
3: <laughs> that sounded like C SPAN. Did it? Yeah. <laughs>
2: I was choking while I was doing it Um, Yeah, special uh, Supreme Court uh, episode for all of you You're welcome, again, by the way Um, Yeah, we have our senior legal analyst with us, Tom Kavanaugh (laughs) Hi, Tom (laughs) Good to be here (laughs) And as always, we have me, the one who constantly chokes and clears his throat uh, Nick McGuire, uh, joined as always by, uh, I said that already, didn't I? Uh, Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College Hi, guys. Hey, howdy. How's it going? It's great. Is it exciting? This it's, is, it this is, this is very exciting. Fun. Huge day. Yeah. Huge, huge day. Yeah, we thought uh, it would be good to kind of just take an entire episode and delve into some of the decisions that came out over the past few days because there are some major, major, major decisions. Um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm not even sure if there's a, a good place to start. We'll, we'll just kind of go through them one by one, I think.
3: Well, maybe we should start with the retirement. A few minutes on, you know, so not only cases, but also the retirement or the announcement of the retirement of Anthony Kennedy. Uh, a huge, huge uh, impact for the court going forward. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a big thing. Yeah, Tom, do you want to start there, Tom?
0: <coughs> Thoughts on initial... Yeah,
3: sure. You, were, you um, said you weren't surprised.
0: Uh, not stunned. Yeah. Um, Supreme Court watchers have all sorts of little things they keep their eye on to see if justices are planning to retire. Of course, they never say whether they are or not. This one was that very short concurring opinion that people thought might be a roadmap for future justices so uh, all of a sudden the betting uh, money was on Kennedy's on his way out this morning on SCOTUS blog there was um, endless speculation about whether he'd do it from the bench or not uh, interestingly there's some conversation about uh, Justice Thomas retiring he's old hmm. uh, uh, he's been there long enough that it wouldn't be impossible to imagine him going too. and of course Ruth Ginsburg is perpetually uh, part of that conversation Kennedy's a big deal because he was the fulcrum, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, it, this uh, is an enormously balanced court, as you see from all these decisions this year. Uh, it will not be balanced, in all likelihood, by his replacement. Uh, <laughs>
1: In some ways it was I mean this is an oversimplification but it seems like in some ways it was a one-man Supreme Court in a lot of ways right
0: yeah he was he was the the basically making the decisions certainly on on a big range of social issues gay rights being the most obvious I mean he's written every major opinion in that area um, but abortion as well uh, abortion as well uh, affirmative action yeah. Yeah. Uh, I'm trying to think yeah there, there have been a number of issues yeah. where
3: he has pulled or he has l- leaned left.
0: Uh. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So maybe we should remind uh, listeners, he's a Reagan appointee. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was actually Reagan's third choice. This was the, uh, uh, a nomination that was preceded by Robert Bork, uh, oh. and then you might recall by Doug Ginsburg, who uh, may have been listening to The Grateful Dead <laughs> as he was doing that thing that kept him from uh, ever getting to Senate hearings. So Kennedy was actually the third choice, and Republicans didn't like it at all. Uh, I, I was reminded today of Chuck Grassley uh, saying that Reagan had compromised all of his conservative principles putting Kennedy on the court. Mm. I suppose he might feel a little vindicated as, as to social issues at least, but uh, he's been a voice of moderation that I think the court will miss. Now it's
3: likely that Trump will appoint somebody that will be much further to the right than Kennedy or, or more solidly conservative. Would we say that that's a fair prediction?
0: If I had to guess, and well, I, th- I think we're going to come back and talk about this later when we've all had a chance to digest it, uh, I think you're going to see a female version of Gorsuch. That is somebody who's very uh, close to the text, uh, who does not see the court as the place to make law, but to interpret it uh, as a person who is tied very closely to the Constitution. There's some really good potential candidates out there. Uh, but I think... Yeah, I mean, <laughs> Predicting sure. Trump is, is you know uh, a foolish game, but I suspect this might be the place where he beats a midterm election with the nomination of a woman uh, to try and sew up some of that, uh, um, what do we say, dislike or distrust sure. of him from that part of the voting, cons- uh, voting public. <laughs> And then there, there's
1: also equal chance that he nominates Rudy Giuliani. There right? is. You're 100 percent right. You're 100 percent right. <laughs> Who is the judge on Fox News? Judge. Uh, oh,
3: I can't think. Oh, of yeah. Judge. Uh, is it oh. Janine? Yes. It's like Hero. Yes. or Something like that. Yeah. Somebody. I can't remember if it was uh, the chief of staff or somebody had said we have to be careful if we don't constrain
1: him. He'll do something like that. So that. <laughs> yeah. as
0: usual, I'm probably giving more
1: credit than is due here. Uh Well, the hope would be that if something like that happened, that the Congress would uh, not pass that through. But we don't have a whole lot of... Hey, fun, there are right? a lot of reason to believe that they wouldn't push through whoever he nominates. But that will be an interesting dynamic
3: as well to it see how quickly the Senate is willing to move. Uh, I think if they bring forth a reasonable candidate, they will mm-hmm. want to move quickly. But it, it only takes a couple for that to fall apart. I mean, the Senate is not that secure for Republicans, so it uh, it should be fun watching.
0: Mm-hmm. If I had to guess, they've already talked about it. You think that so? Is, I think Gorsuch, everybody was thinking that Gorsuch would be the first of more than one. Uh, and and I have a feeling, at least, Senate leadership and Trump have already talked about who comes next. Considering the timetable, uh, I think they have to. Yeah, yeah. Have to have uh, the Filibusters change. off the table. Right. So theoretically, you could have somebody confirmed uh, mm-hmm. by the November. Uh, you may, it might very likely have somebody confirmed by the midterms. You have to, right? Because if you're
3: the if you're the Republicans, you can't take the chance of losing mm-hmm. losing Fair- the Senate.
1: There are so many people who are yelling right now at the podcast something about six months out from an election is too soon to be nominating Supreme <laughs> yes, yeah, right. yeah. Court justice. We have to wait and uh-huh. let the people decide. Right. Uh-huh. Exactly.
3: Well, here, I mean, who is it? Somebody was at the Senate floor today making that argument to say yeah. that no way the Republicans can go forward. It took 293 days to get uh,
1: Gorsuch. We, you know, we have to. <laughs> the, di- the difference is that the Republicans controlled Congress when right. when Gorsuch was nominated and the Democrats don't now, so. Well, elections. and that the argument elections was it, matter. The, mm-hmm.
0: that the president yes. should make that nomination, not right. uh, the Senate. Senate so confirmation. here, we've, the people have spoken. Right. Whatever anybody thinks of what they said, uh, you've got a president. And right. he'll be that for three more years, uh, or maybe eight, but, but certainly three more years. Sure. So I, I, I think the—I'm not persuaded that that's a meaningful comparison. No, and I, think I, don't I don't say that to you, Phil. I mean, I just I heard it today all day as well. So I, I mean, I will, thing. I will
1: throw out it was a bad argument then, right? That <laughs> yeah. The people, you have to wait for an election Absolutely. for the people to speak. But if, yeah. if the people speaking is what matters, then. The people are going to speak in six months Mm -hmm. and maybe they're going to make a statement about President Trump through, Mm -hmm. you know, a Democratic uh, landslide. And Mm -hmm. so Mm -hmm. none of it matters. Right. It's just rhetoric that we like to yell back and forth at each other. It's power politics. But,
3: you know, on a couple of those issues where Kennedy was voted more with more with the liberal judges uh, thinking about abortion, is this something we think you could see cases coming forward or is Roberts going to be less inclined to go back and undermine some of that sitting precedent? Mm
0: There's already cases. Yeah. Uh, The the states have been nibbling at the edges of uh, abortion law generally. Sure. Um, There are cases in the pipeline right now. I don't know that there are cases that are outright, let's overrule uh, or or overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, But what's likely to happen with a more conservative justice is a more friendly reception for uh, notification requirements, ultrasound testing, those sorts of things. Um, i 'd be i 'd be astonished if let 's assume Trump gets two more justices if they 'd overturn roe, yeah it just it just at this point in american history it doesn 't make be too sense. toxic mm-hmm. to do yeah yeah, too many people rely on it And, sure. you know in the Abood case, that question came up to what degree do we make judgments based on the way people have begun to live their lives um, Not enough that we don 't overturn Abood, but I think Roe versus Wade is a thing that 's so. Uh, woven into the American fabric that it would be very unlikely to get an outright reversal. Sure. So they don't do that all that often anyway.
3: Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. Well, we're going to come back to this in a couple of weeks mm-hmm. once we yes. get a little more information. But, Tom, should we dive into the cases? Yeah, oh. I thought
0: before we get to the cases, I, I, I just thought I'd mention three things and see if you're seeing the same thing going on in, in uh, many of these decisions. Um, the, the first is that this is a court that has shown incredible modesty in terms of what it has done. This is not the Warren Court. Mm-hmm. And this is, uh, I think you could make a case, very much one of the fingerprints John Roberts has put on the court. Uh, he sees the court as a thing of last resort in some ways. And just by way of example, the masterpiece decision uh, is a relatively narrow one, and it, it focused primar- uh, primarily on the obvious religious animus in the Colorado Commission. That was the case. Uh, this, this is the baking the cake, cake case. Yeah. So what they didn't do was to issue a big, broad ruling on conscience or something like that. They stuck close to the facts, and they were very modest in the opinion. So it'll be back. The Arlene's Flowers case is probably coming back, though they sent it down for lower court review. Um, The gerrymandering cases that we'll get to later are also a a sort of testimony to modesty. And and I don't know how all of you feel, but I'm I'm really taken by the idea that the court isn't trying to – radically alter the american landscape by rewriting or writing law and -hmm. i think this has been a term that showed that Mm -hmm.
1: so i i um i had read some people who suspected that some of that modesty was due to the imminent retirement of kennedy that essentially this recognition that he won't be on the court that essentially this you know punting to some extent sending Mm -hmm. it back down and next year you know or it'll work its way back up when you have a this sort of new alignment of the court do you see any credibility to that? I mean, do you think that plays into this to some extent, his, that, that basically we'll wait, he's going out, we'll wait until uh, well, that, we have another Well, that assumes court. that
0: he told his colleagues, and, yeah. and they may have been as surprised as we were today to hear this happen. That is to say, not shocked and awed, because it's, you know, he's been on the court 30-plus years, he's 80-plus years old, but they may not have known. If they did... Uh, I'd have been surprised if decisions were predicated on we're going to get a replacement for him. Uh, To marshal the kind of votes you'd need to punt a case because you think another person's coming, I think would be really hard, particularly given that there's four liberal justices or relatively liberal Mm -hmm. justices on the other side who could make doing that very difficult.
3: And some of the liberal justices were part of the punting as well, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It is an interesting, mm-hmm. it, I've heard it described as restraint. Mm-hmm. I've also heard kicking the can, punting. Mm-hmm. It's kind of interesting to think what's mm-hmm. going on here. Um, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Well, uh, so why not call it what it is? They've been modest about the powers of the court, which is something we've not gotten used to in the presidency and Congress. Mm-hmm. And and there's something really appealing to me about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that, that was the first thing I thought you <coughs> mentioned. How, how much of that, I'm sorry, I'm going to keep no, talking. Um,
1: <laughs> <laughs> how much of that is due to the deep division and the animosity? How much of is it is that? they just can't get five people on board with a strong decision. So it's not necessarily that they have a philosophical view that the court should be modest. It's that they there's such gridlock that the court can't do these big sweeping Mm. decisions.
0: You know, I don't know. Oh, I'm sorry, Nick. No. Oh, I thought you were going to answer that question. (laughs) (laughs) Um, There's certainly some five fours. The Alito opinion and Janus is a five four. Uh, Carpenter was a five four, much to my surprise. But there, there's been some 9 Gill's essentially 9 It's a whole bunch of different concurrences and, and that sort of thing. Um, I, I don't think the court is any more uh, divided ideologically now than it has been in the past. I do think there's tension, uh, yeah. and, and I want to talk about Korematsu and a couple of those things in a minute, um, but I don't know that the modesty is a function of that. I, I think it's the chief who has said, uh, if I'm going to put my fingerprint on this court the way Warren did on his, it's going to be for the opposite reason. I'm going to, we're not going to be a court that people remember as uh, trying to rewrite the Constitution or trying to rewrite American life.
3: Which is so contrary to everything else in American politics right
0: That's now. That's right. Yeah, yeah mm-hmm. which is one of the reasons it's so appealing to me. Well, let's dive into um, the, the So, so here's bed. a second, yeah, yeah. And, and that is, this is a court that believes in federalism. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, boy, oh boy, uh, these are Madisonian uh, federalists, not Hamiltonian federalists. I'm thinking here of the NCAA case giving the states the right to uh, uh, have sanctioned gambling, the Husted case that went kind of under the radar that allowed Ohio to purge its voter uh, Mm -hmm. rolls in a way that was very troubling to some people, Uh, even Wayfair, which we won't spend much time on, but here was a case that gave states the right to require people that do not have a physical presence in the state to collect tax for them. Um, so the court was very deferential to states and um, I don't know from where I sit, I'm, I'm finding a second thing uh, very appealing about this mm-hmm. term that they, they sort of empowered the states. I'll just throw one more out there and then we can get to tension and, and, uh, unless you want to talk <laughs> about them. This was a year for liberty. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, the, the first case we talked about this year as a group was Epic. Mm-hmm. Uh, let people sign contracts relative to arbitration and enforce them. It carries through to Janus. Uh, you got a right not to be in a union, and you got a right not to have them put your words or their words in your mouth. The speech cases almost entirely reflect a kind of individual liberty approach. Uh, Even McCoy, if you might recall, the case where uh, the defendant uh, wants not to have guilt admitted for him, but his lawyer does it anyway. I mean, the court basically said, People do what you want. And I think this is Kennedy. He's the libertarian sort on the court. Do what you like. Bear the responsibility for it. Uh, but, but we're going to stand for liberty. So it's kind of the three things yeah. that as I've begun to think about all the opinions now that they're out, I saw. So tension. Yeah. Uh, uh, and there seems to me to be plenty. We, we talked the last time we were together about the fact that they're very slow to decide these cases uh, this year and slow to grant cert. That suggests some tension. Um, I mentioned Korematsu, which listeners will recall as the Japanese internment case that Sotomayor uh, referenced in her dissent in Trump v. Hawaii, um, which she read—not uh, all of it, of course—but read much of uh, from the bench. Korematsu is nuclear uh, radioactive. It, it, everybody hates it. It would be like citing Plessy versus Ferguson or something like that. And what's so interesting about it is that it's not the same case. Uh, I I sort of, uh, I I was very frustrated with Alito the last time we met, talking about a motorcycle on the curb is the same as a motorcycle in a carport. Well, uh, rounding up American citizens who are already resident and putting them in prison camps is an entirely different thing than temporarily um, denying visas to enter the country. These are not the same thing. Mm And uh, so one wonders, why would she bring it up? Uh, she, she has to know that. Uh, and, and I think it's, uh, she's angry. Mm-hmm. She's angry about Abbott, the redistricting case. Uh, she's angry about Trump. She doesn't like Trump. And koromatsu is the way to use um, the judicial equivalent of the F word about somebody. If you hmm. do this and it's like koromatsu, you're a terrible human being.
3: The argument being or the the argument that she was making is that in both cases, both in the Japanese internment camps in the 44 case and in this case right here, the government, her argument is the government is using national security reasons to justify targeting a particular population. That was the parallel that she saw. But I think you're right to say that there are Mm. significant differences. And Roberts even pointed that out in his his opinion.
0: Yeah. Uh, it, It appears as though these opinions that came very late have been long in development and probably circulated frequently for amendment and editing. And I gotta guess the Korematsu thing came up late. I suspect that's one of the reasons this is the second to last big case that was decided this term. Uh, And it was decided late because Roberts went back and said, A, this is not Korematsu. Mm -hmm. Uh, It doesn't bear any reasonable resemblance to it. Um, But B, uh, why don't we just take this opportunity to formally uh, overturn Korematsu, which, technically has never been done and now is so maybe in the end it's kind of nice to say it's off the books but Korematsu wasn't a case anybody used to do anything except um, uh, insult people sure yeah Mm -hmm. Phil
3: (laughs) (laughs) go ahead the one thing I was gonna say is that uh, I also found it interesting to read both Roberts and Kennedy's opinions and they were clearly making an argument that the president has this power. Mm-hmm. This is a, and, and their language, what did they say, that it, the, the statute was neutral, right? Yep. That, uh, and this was the third, essentially the third travel ban. The first mm-hmm. one was very explicit, saying it was about Muslims. They got smarter. And the second and the third one mm-hmm. made it neutral. But I also got the sense in both of those opinions that they were not pleased with Trump. I mean, it was pushing back some of the language. Yep.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I had a couple Can't, quotes here. Go ahead, Phil. I mean, Kennedy's uh, statement was essentially that this is unconstitutional, but not in a way that the court has power to overturn. Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, he basically said just because the court doesn't overturn it doesn't mean that it's not unconstitutional for other reasons and that the president shouldn't limit himself. Something along those lines. Right. Which is powerful words. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So
3: from the text here from Kennedy, indeed, the very fact that an official may talking about the president may have broad discretion discretion free from judicial scrutiny makes it all the more important for him or her to adhere to the Constitution and its meanings and its promise. Mm-hmm.
0: He, he's, he's pushing back on Trump. Absolutely. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, and listen, I'm not unhappy with much of what Sotomayor said in her dissent. I think the ruling is correct. Uh, that is, enormous deference should be given the executive branch relative to national security. Uh, and it's important to distinguish between the president and the presidency. And I think the court here focused on the presidency, um, notwithstanding the fact that Roberts and Kennedy went out of their way to say, we're troubled by the way this guy talks about these things too. But, but to have made a ruling based on going inside this president's head and uh, looking at things he said while he was on the campaign trail um, boy, oh boy, uh, does that open a can of worms? Mm-hmm. If the statute itself had
3: still had that language, talked about a Muslim ban, not you know mm-hmm. would, would that have
0: made this unconstitutional in their minds? I know you' I, I think that's what Kennedy was after. yeah, uh, That is to say, I don't think he thinks the executive order uh, as a general thing is unconstitutional. Uh, I don't think he thinks this particular one is unconstitutional, but I think he is worried that. Uh, previous words about it mm-hmm. and maybe the way you'd read the the first two iterations uh, these were sufficiently religiously oriented mm-hmm. that maybe they were but listen uh they they don't include lots of muslim majority countries none of the right. three did um, they include non-muslim countries uh the, at least the third one does uh and Congress has given the president this power uh, in in our immigration law. So what the court did here is what it has done modestly all year. Congress has spoken. The president has acted. And because there isn't something about either of those two things that violates the Constitution, we're not going to stop them.
3: And don't look to the court to save you for decisions that the the executive and legislative Mm -hmm. branches have made. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we
0: said it about EPIC. Congress can go back and rewrite the Federal Arbitration Act. Not the court. Yeah, mm-hmm.
3: yeah. I found that I found that argument compelling, right? I think I disagreed with the travel ban, but the Supreme Court's logic here—I understand mm-hmm. that. I understand mm-hmm. they're saying this is not our job to interpret the intent of the president. We're going to look at right. the statute right. itself mm-hmm. and what it says. Now, the four dissenter said, "How could you miss this?" I mean, he's been very open about it, mm-hmm. um, but I, I get that.
0: The text yeah. of the order, yeah. and the text of the statute are entirely consistent, and what he said, yeah. Outside the context of writing it And uh, not even as president yet I think the court said Once we go down that road I I would just invite those who think this is uh, Who are agreeing with the dissent To say to themselves What happens when there is a solid 5-4 conservative majority Looking inside the head of let's say Kristen Gillibrand or whoever the Democrat That might win is Well she might have said one thing But we think she meant another Mm -hmm. uh, Horrifying
1: I'm going to begin our nitpicking. Now. Excellent. Right. Excellent. I'm <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't necessarily disagree with what you're saying. I, I think that, I, I mean, he, it's not what was going on in his head, right? This is stuff that he's actually said. So if I say to you on this podcast, I'm going to, I, you know, I, I, intent matters in some way, right? And when it comes to, to, to the law, if I tell you that I'm going to go commit a crime or I'm going to go, you know, I'm going to drive my car down the street and run over someone intentionally or whatever, um, then whether you're charging me with manslaughter or murder, what I have said leading up to it factors in, right? It matters. That is something about that what is in my head and intention. And you can prove intention that way or you can. I don't know if you can prove it, prove it. But you can, you know, you can bring evidence that shows that that was my intent. and And you wouldn't. In that case, say we can't consider what he has said before this action when he went out and got in his car and ran over this person on a bicycle. You would say absolutely that matters, right? What he said before he went and carried out this action 100 percent matters. And to that to that real quickly, Phil, I just you know, when he was right after he announced uh, as a
3: candidate that he was going to block all Muslims, he was interviewed on Good Morning America, and what he said is, What I'm quote, what I'm doing is no different than FDR. I mean, take a look at what FDR did many years ago, and he's the one the most highly respected presidents. I mean respected by most people. They named highways <laughs> after him, right? I mean so to that point, Phil, I don't think at least early on, I don't think he was running away from that. The statute certainly mm-hmm. did. I mean the mm-hmm. legal minds around him said, mm-hmm. You can't say that, mister President. Mm-hmm. But his intent and his words suggest that I don't know if he saw such a distinction between what FDR did and what he was talking about doing.
1: I, I don't know if everything he said is enough to prove that, but I don't, mm-hmm. think, you can say, I don't mm-hmm. think we can say that you,
0: you, don't, you shouldn't consider it at all. Well, I guess I'm going uh, to find an even smaller knit and, <laughs> okay. and pick it right now. Uh, if I say I'm going to run somebody over on a bike and then I do, the intent matters because I carried through on exactly the threat that I made. Mm. The argument the court is making here is that he didn't. He may have said those things. But the actual order itself is different than the thing he said. Mm. When you read it plain and on its face, uh, that is to say there is nothing in it that invokes religion other than perhaps demographics of some of the countries that are in it. And that's different than saying, Phil, for picking nits with uh, you, I'm flying out there and I'm going to shoot you. (laughs) Then I do. And, of course, that premeditation is absolutely the way you'd prove first-degree murder. But he didn't do the thing he said he was going to. This is why he was rescued by the fact that it was the third travel ban, not the first or the second, that actually got there, because the language of it sure. isn't the crime. So I'm going to follow this down the metaphorical rabbit hole. <laughs> and we, should, we should get off of it,
1: but it feels to me like the, the argument you're making is a bit like you saying, "Phil, I'm going to fly out and shoot you, and then tomorrow, as I'm walking across the street, you run me over with a car." <laughs> and your defense is, "I didn't. I. I it's not the, what I said I was going to do, but the fact that you, in some way." expressed a desire to kill me, the fact that you didn't do it in the exact way that you said you were going to do it, doesn't mean that you were like in a, it could have been an accident, but it would sure make you look, it would be fishy, right? The jury would, would wonder. All right, well, so but let, let me throw the second
0: point at you. Uh, no, I don't think it's the same as that. Killing you is a crime, irrespective of the uh, modality I used to do it. And what Trump would say, and the court did, was I never actually killed him. I wrote an executive order that's consistent with the immigration bill or statute Uh, and don't get inside my head. Here's the second thing. Uh, Maybe he changed his mind. I mean, we're, we're treating him. Uh, I, I, I hesitate to be the guy that uh, might be framed as the defender of, but listen, it's possible that his thinking evolved over the course of those three executive orders. Uh, and that the third one does not reflect what would have been a more obvious anti-Muslim bias. Now, I don't know if that's the case or not, but this is the guessing game that the court avoided when it said we're not going to try and get into his head. Right.
3: It's also I, possible that his advisors came to him and said that version mm-hmm. can't pass. You have to right. shift the policy. Right. Which even if his initial motivation was for the more for the Muslim band, he says, OK, well, I'll accept this different version.
1: Mm hmm. So I, 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 I agree with you. I think there's a chance that he changed his mind. I think all of this comes into it. I just, I don't like the notion that we shouldn't consider it at all. Mm -hmm. I think that that is something that goes into it and maybe it's not enough to prove it. Maybe there is enough doubt. Maybe you could make an argument that he changed his mind, but Mm -hmm. to say that we shouldn't consider what he has said about it seems, Mm -hmm. I I don't, I don't know that that's a, um, a liberty that you would grant to, a another, I I know he's not a defendant in this case. I mean, he's not a criminal defendant in this place, but, um, yeah, I don't. I mean, I it's, it's it. Yeah, it's well, interesting. I mean,
2: I I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, no, I I mean, I think starting this conversation, it's clear that they thought about his intent going into this. Mm-hmm. It's almost impossible to not see that. I I tend to agree with you on this, Tom. It's very hard to determine intent on something, which realistically, especially in something as complex as foreign relations and diplomacy and national security, there could have been. A million different reasons besides, you know, a religious affiliation, you know, um, potential national national security concerns in the sense of potential attacks that are coming from these countries, uh, criminal organizations that are part of it, that they have information about that we have no idea about. Mm -hmm. It's the idea that it's specifically because that and realistically, I think most of us think that there's a good chance that that's what it is. It's it's too hard to. Determine. Sure. I don't think you would ever be able to determine that. So why would you? Right, you have to again go down the yeah. rabbit hole. Oh, I think
0: you can win the argument on intent by pointing to majority Muslim countries not included. Uh, in, in other words, that's a very strong mitigating fact. If you don't want Muslims in here, then you ban Malaysia, mm-hmm. uh, you ban Turkey. Uh, there, I mean, there's yeah. all sorts of countries. Saudi Arabia. There's a whole long list of them. We're getting there. Um, yeah. <laughs> but 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 the second thing is, I just. I want you to think about what it looks like when the court starts reading the minds yeah. of uh, presidents. And, and I think, Phil, I guess I'm kind of responding to your thought that we should consider intent. I think we shouldn't precisely because once we open that door, it's going to be very difficult to make a judgment about how you close it uh, or when you close it. Uh, I mean, do you look at things people said when they were running for student council in high school? You look at things Things they said on their Facebook feed in college. Sure. Uh, I mean, really, the, it, it's a talk about going down the rabbit's hole. Right. Yeah. Uh, if you look no. at the document and it is on its face defensible and you don't go yeah. further, you never get into that trap. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I, I tend to
1: agree. I mean, I tend to agree with you. I, I just like the. <laughs> <laughs> I have a tendency to take the logic of something out to the extreme mm-hmm. and see it. I, that's fun for me. But mm-hmm. I think that's why I enjoy or why I appreciate like Kennedy's point that he makes in which yes. he basically says this is deeply concerning and uh-huh. problematic and, you know, yes, right. very, very likely unconstitutional. Mm-hmm. But yes, mm-hmm. based on the facts before us, we're, you know, yeah, uh, the the restraint, but also the expression of this is almost certainly problematic in this mm-hmm. kind of yeah. larger constitutional sense mm-hmm. we should probably
0: move we on. should move on. i know yeah there's, the cases. There's, there's great
1: things are great
0: <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> three big themes yeah. i i thought to throw out to the group the first is privacy uh three cases here one we've talked about one that was decided quite a while ago but fits the whole and then the brand new one carpenter the one we talked about is collins that was our curtilage case you might recall this was an eight to one decision it was the one that uh drew me to soto mayor in a way that was uh I, I thought her opinion was just really wonderful in Motorcycle this one. Motorcycle
3: under a tarp, right? Mm-hmm. Yep.
0: Motorcycle under a tarp. And she determines this is a search. She gets eight to go, well, seven to go with her. Um, really important case. Uh, Bird is a case we have not mentioned, but this involved the question of what happens when a car is searched. The driver is uh, not, uh, it, it is a rental car, I should back up. Uh, the driver is not the driver of record on the rental car agreement. Search without a warrant clearly searched in violation of uh, the Fourth Amendment. And the question in the case was, does the driver of the car have the right to assert the Fourth Amendment, even if they are not on the rental agreement? Uh, answer, they do. That is to say, you have a reasonable expectation of privacy. And this was a 9-0 uh, Kennedy opinion. Um, and, and essentially what they said was, you have a reasonable expectation of privacy in a car, even if your name's not on the license or the rental agreement. Which brings us to Carpenter. Mm-hmm. Uh, here consensus starts to fold a little bit. It's a 5-4 opinion. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts wrote it. Uh, we've mentioned this case earlier. Recall this is uh, a case brought under the Electronic Communications Act. Uh, police gather lots and lots of uh, information about cell phone pings. They identify Carpenter as a guy that's robbing cell phone <laughs> stores as, as a result of uh, getting their hands on all of this um, cell phone data. Uh, It turns out that the FBI makes about 100,000 of these requests of cell phone companies a year. So this is not an outlier that's, you know, sort of, well, it just happened to Carpenter. It happens all the time. Uh, Roberts, writing for the majority, says uh, this is a search. That is, if you get this cell phone location data, you have conducted a search. Our Constitution says when you do a search, you get a warrant with probable cause, not this much lower standard that's contained in the federal statute. Um, he invokes both the privacy right of expectation and the property right. Uh, the interesting thing about this case, uh, and then I'm going to just step back and ask you all what you think of privacy this year at the Supreme Court, um, is that there has been a long-standing idea called the third-party doctrine. And that is when you relinquish information, let's say banking records, uh, law enforcement can obtain those things uh, without a warrant because you've essentially waived your right to privacy having given them to a third party. And the argument government made here was, this simply extends the third party doctrine. It's no different than getting bank records or something like that. Uh, And in fact, the dissenters took that view. Um, What Roberts said was this, uh, and uh, here I'm gonna put myself in his head. (laughs) This is an entirely different class of information. And it is not a thing uh, that is akin to Uh, canceled checks or something like that uh, in a bank vault or wherever you keep, well, We probably don't keep canceled checks anymore, right? Um, He took the position that we've got to carve out new territory for digital privacy. Um, I'm I'm sure you can imagine I'm uh, absolutely on his side here, uh, even recognizing that, uh, as the dissenters said, this is enormously valuable law enforcement information. The amicus briefs all said that. Uh, If you've heard any interviewing today, police are lamenting this, uh, or today or over the course of the week, lamenting this decision. But the plain fact of the matter is this is information most people think should be private. It allows a very different kind of surveillance in your life. And the court has acknowledged that and protected it. I think that's a good thing. Mm
3: -hmm. 100,000 requests a
0: year. Isn't that
3: crazy? That's insane. Mm-hmm. And most people didn't know that this was taking place. Of course, right. yeah. yeah, yeah,
0: right.
1: Uh, this seems to me philosophically this the same as the, it's Collins, right? Which is the motorcycle case. And uh-huh. that, my objection in that was, if there's not an immediate danger of some sort, then I, I don't understand. <laughs> like, go get a warrant, right? right. It doesn't yeah. seem like that it's that hard to do if you Amen. have a probable cause. If you mm-hmm. can prove that this person is suspected of doing something then go to a judge and get the judge to sign off on it but the idea that just you know you, you just have total access to everyone's location one, data is one I minor I distinction
0: I, I think i'd make is that they found carpenter because uh, because they had the information that is they didn't suspect carpenter ahead of time mm-hmm. they used the information to make carpenter a suspect so they thought the guy had the motorcycle under the tarp they could have parked across the driveway in collins and they could have gotten a warrant they wouldn't have known who to get the warrant relative to uh, in the carpenter case without getting their hands on the cell phone records Mm -hmm. Um, and it turns out of course that he's pinging these towers right next to the cell phone stores (laughs) that he's robbing with his own cell phone turned on so it's it you're right that philosophically there's some connections but that's, I think, one of the reasons the case is so important. You can't do yeah. fishing expeditions by gathering right. up enormous amounts of cell phone location data and then getting a warrant to catch the guy or the gal that you think did it. Right. It, the same the same concepts apply.
1: It, at some point in the past, this data was not readily available and you had to find people. That's right. Yes. The hard way. And just mm-hmm. because the data is everywhere now doesn't mean mm-hmm. that the police get it. I mean, I, mm-hmm. you know, I, anyway. It it strikes me that the the third-party doctrine
3: was one thing in the 20th century. That's right. And then we've entered the 21st century where Mm -hmm. these third-party agreements are everywhere. Mm -hmm. They're digital. uh, Mm -hmm. And I I think it was Alito who wrote one of the dissents and was saying, you're going to have so many of these cases now. And my thought was good. Good. I want to start discerning, like, when, where are we going to draw that line? Because we're, Mm -hmm. we're using the court. We're using a twentieth-century understanding of the third-party doctrine mm-hmm. to address twenty-first century. I mean, so mm-hmm. much has changed. So no, yeah, and this we're, is a no-brainer. We're
0: also we're also using a twentieth-century understanding of checks, credit card records, and all of that, right, right. because no one sends a, a, a chase a, a letter to Chase Bank and says, "Give us every checking transaction that took place over the last hundred and eighty days relative to everybody that wrote a check or used a Chase credit card," and let us just skim through those and see if we can't connect some of those to a crime. Um, the, the third party doctrine said if Bill Muck mm-hmm. is a suspect, we're going to go ask Chase for his banking records. Mm-hmm. That's different than just starting to subpoena. Uh, well, you don't even have to subpoena. You just send a letter. Yeah. Dear Chase, give us everything or dear Verizon or Sprint. So it really, I think it's an enormously important decision. It, it extends the Jones decision. This was the one where the FBI put the GPS on the bottom of a, a, a drug uh, suspect's car and then use that to pair him with um, a particular house at which drugs were being mm-hmm. bought and sold. So it's one mm-hmm. step beyond what we already knew, and I'm a little surprised it's 5-4, given that uh, the Jones case was virtually, I, I wanna say it was eight to one or nine to nothing. Um, uh, so I'm surprised by five to four. Yeah, uh, that, that's think the one part of this case that's year. a little surprising yeah. to me, yeah. Mm-hmm. Moving on, what else, Tom? Well, that's privacy, unless, uh, unless there's anything anybody wants to say about any of those, or we could move to gerrymandering. Let's do gerrymandering, yeah. So I think it was an outright win this year for civil libertarians on privacy. Uh, I mean, the only possible uh, uh, diminishing aspect is 5-4 and Carpenter. The cases all came out robustly in favor of protecting privacy. Gerrymandering, not so much. <laughs> Uh, I've been calling this one of the big five, and I know I've said in in previous times we've been together that, boy, did I have my fingers crossed we might do something about partisan gerrymandering, and it turns out uh, here really is a punt. Um, In a nutshell, you'll recall this was the Wisconsin case. It involves Republicans redrawing legislative districts to give themselves an advantage, pure and simple. Um, The court decided this on a standing question, Standing is uh, uh, demonstrating that you have an actual injury uh, in the case that's being brought uh, to a court. And because the plaintiffs in this case took the position that a statewide map produced statewide injuries, irrespective of whether or not they were in a particular district that caused an injury to them, the court uh, has sent the case back saying uh, it fails on standing grounds. Uh, so it's not even a punt in the sense that it says this is a great question, let's come back to it. It's a punt in the sense that it makes it very, very difficult to bring a thing that, that draws a state's entire map into question, uh, which makes me think they don't want to solve the problem of partisan gerrymandering. Maybe that's judicial modesty, uh, but, but I'm, I'm not optimistic it comes back on this sort of set of questions.
3: It would be a very difficult thing for them to do, right? I mean, they would, be mm-hmm. set, they would have to give some guideline
0: mm-hmm.
3: for courts to interpret mm-hmm. this. Yeah. So I see why they would be uh, reluctant to do so. But I, like you, was, was hoping. I felt like of all the mm-hmm. cases, this, this was the most important one mm-hmm. for pushing back on some of the hyper-partisanship. I mean, Phil, you talk about this all the time, the, the hyper-partisanship. And I felt like the gerrymandering case was the one way you could force
0: yep.
1: people to be back together again. Yeah. Oh. Well, how how is this different from the Texas gerrymandering case which yeah, I was going to bring that a stronger up stronger statement um, on
0: uh, Yeah a very strong statement Abbott is the Texas case it is a race gerrymandering case mm-hmm. not a partisan uh, gerrymandering case the argument there is that the Texas legislature has cracked and packed uh, districts to dilute the value of um, minority votes and Texas had uh, an outright win That is to say, only one of the districts was regarded as uh, racially gerrymandered in a way that the court thought was unconstitutional. All of the other ones were not. Um, This is the first of the cases that clearly had Sandra, uh, I'm sorry, uh, Sotomayor very upset. Uh, She read uh, a portion of her dissent from the bench and it was very harshly worded. Uh, Indeed, she uh, didn't even use the word respectfully in closing it, she dissented. Uh, they're always signed. I respectfully dissent. She took the word respectfully out. Um, she thinks this opens the door to uh, ugly racial gerrymandering. So, the problem, oh, I'm sorry. So
2: no, quick question on that. How are they defining racially gerrymandered districts?
0: Yeah, you see, that's the difficulty. The Voting Rights Act allows for uh, privileging um, minority interests in legislative districts, I think would be the best way to put it. The problem for a state is if they do too much, they violate the Constitution. If they do too little, they violate the Voting Rights Act. Mm -hmm. And so Texas is caught, and here's a beautiful way of putting it, right on the horns of a dilemma. (laughs) You're not all laughing, I thought that was really good. (laughs) That's waiting for the Horns, the steer, right, yeah. Uh, If you over-racially gerrymander, you're stuck. If you under-racially gerrymander, you're stuck. And and oddly enough, in the in the same way that they're struggling to come up with a partisan gerrymandering standard, we still don't have an absolutely great standard for race gerrymandering. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, th- D- didn't didn't the court basically say? I, I I haven't
1: read the actual decision, but some of the commentary gave me the impression that they, in some way, stated that the Voting Rights Act doesn't apply to gerrymandering issues, or there were there were. There was a, some level of, under, not undermining, but f- further weakening the Voting Rights Act or basically saying that it, didn't, it, didn't, it wasn't relevant in this particular case. Am I, am I misunderstanding that? Yeah,
0: the, the central feature of the Abbott ruling is that the, uh, this is an Alito ruling as well, 5-4, um, so, so tense and um, from, I think, the most ideologically conservative justice on the bench. Basically, he said there's a presumption of legislative good faith. And, uh, you know, in, in some ways, Phil, interestingly enough, this comes back to the intent question as well. Uh, do we go inside the heads of Texas legislators and say they intended to hurt black and Hispanic voters? Or do we look they at them? Uh, they, <laughs> <laughs> they, they did. As a lifelong <laughs> Texan, I can tell you, they did. <laughs> yes. Um, that said, uh, uh, what, what Alito said here is there's a strong presumption of good faith for legislatures and overcoming it is something the plaintiffs in these uh, districts that were upheld couldn't do. Mm.
1: The, I mean, the weird thing with all of this, I was, as I, I was saying, I am kind of want to go back and add to what I was saying about how they did. Uh, there's there; These are two different types of cases, right? Yes. Uh, partisan and racial. But the issue in a place like Texas is that the two overlap, right? So that's yeah. where the intent, the intent is interesting, because mm-hmm. is the intention to uh, undermine um minorities because they are minorities or mm-hmm. is the intention to undermine minorities because they vote democratic right and so yeah. there's there the two line up in,
0: in interesting ways that that are absolutely know, it, right in um, fact I, I, it, it it makes the partisan gerrymandering case harder because people aggregate in ways that make it difficult to carve up a map in a, a way that for, i mean for example chicago is overwhelmingly democratic uh Naperville isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so, what does it look like to draw a map where you try and mix those two things, or do you just simply acknowledge there are going to be districts where there isn't uh, dissent? Right. Um, mm-hmm. Now that you know they had a standard, and it was this wasted votes uh, approach that was suggested. Uh, basically, they never got to it because they could take care of Gill on on standing grounds, and wasted votes doesn't apply to race gerrymandering cases.
3: I I was hoping they would not necessarily get into all of those, but the most egregious cases. Mm And I think that was where I thought at least there's something where you could state both both sides would agree on. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm.
1: This is a problem that is inherent to a single member district plurality election style system that we have. Uh, I mean it's it's easy when you have states because the states are drawn right so Senate elections the states are drawn and mm-hmm. and there are some of those that are partisan gerrymandering yeah, right like yeah Alabama is always is not always pretty much always Republican mm-hmm. um, so but but it's when you I don't know it seems like the solution is to in some way take the drawing of these lines out of the hands of parties of partisan mm-hmm. politicians um, or in my opinion better yet, Get rid of the single-member district, district. plurality. You uh, sound like uh, such a comparative uh, politics professor. <laughs> <laughs>
3: uh, well, we were running Move over to time. Speech? We, yes. Do yeah,
0: because the speech cases, boy, oh, boy, we spent so much time on the others. The speech cases are outrageously good. Uh, the latest case is NIFLA. Uh, this is a California state. Last year. <laughs> yes. is a California state statute that tells crisis pregnancy centers that they have to advise pregnant women who come in that there are low-cost uh, available services including abortion um, uh, uh, it is compelled speech that is to say it is the state telling somebody what they must say whether it's a public or a private uh, facility um, and the, the court has struck this state statute essentially this is a more complicated procedural one it's going to go back for further review but but the likelihood of winning is is essentially zero um, this is 5-4 it's Clarence Thomas writing uh, and his position in this case is that the state says they want people to be well-informed, but that the words they're putting in people's mouths don't extend making them well-informed. Mm. That is, everybody knows abortion's available, essentially, is what he's saying. Um, and 5-4, uh, uh, Kagan and Sotomayor again in a dissent, Breyer as well, and and relatively hostile ones. Um, Troublemakers. They, they see this <laughs> as... Uh, Reducing people's rights. I see it as a a further liberty question, Mm -hmm. right? Um, People Can figure out their lives and uh, The idea that a clinic has to tell you uh, a thing that is so widely and well known by Americans Doesn't make sense to me, especially where it violates the conscience of the person in whose mouth you're putting those words I can, can see. I, I can see Phil uh, <laughs> uh, chomping at the bit.
1: I, just, I, I to be you know I should be honest that I'm thinking about these things for the first time as we talk. But the thing that pops into my head is that we require speech in other arenas. Now I know that this is not a private sphere, but you're, the argument that everybody knows this. Um, if that's the case, shouldn't that mean that we get rid of Miranda rights and all these other things? Yeah, well, mean, some people play, are making
0: that very argument.
1: Right. Um, so. i i mean the the whole the idea is if people are better informed i don't know i i'm i while i like the individual liberty thing i am troubled by the notion that if you don't if you're not legally or medically well informed then tough shit which is in some ways the the you know like everybody knows that you have a right to remain silent everybody knows you can get an abortion when in fact Mm -hmm. Maybe we all know that, but it's not known that everybody, it's not just common knowledge that that, that is the case. In fact, in, a, yeah. in an environment like this, where there are lots of attempts to dramatically decrease the access to abortion, mm-hmm.
0: I, 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 you know, I, don't, mm-hmm. I don't know, I'm not, I'm not as persuaded. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, and clearly four of the justices weren't either. Yeah. Uh, the case doesn't turn on Thomas saying, everybody knows this, therefore they don't have to say it. The case turns on, the state made a, an argument about what it is they want people to know, and that the language that is being put in people's mouths doesn't advance the informational interest the state itself has asserted. So I, I'm gonna nitpick on that part as well. well <laughs> <laughs> it, because it's
1: in the medical realm, the other part I see to it is that we we force medical practitioners to share information all the time, right? About the side effects of medications Your your options right when we when you're getting ready to go into surgery you have to be told about all the possible side effects of uh, you know anesthesia and the other alternatives mm-hmm. available to mm-hmm. you if you don't want surgery mm-hmm. and so I, I it in my mind this seems um, it doesn't i guess here's the, the the way i see it is the burden seems pretty small Mm -hmm. on the provider Mm -hmm. to say hey abortion is available it seems like that Mm -hmm. burden is really small Mm -hmm. and the benefit the idea of having people who are informed right it it costs Mm -hmm. very little just to assure ensure that people are well informed in a way that they can make medical you know well informed medical Mm -hmm. decisions for Mm -hmm. themselves and so i don't know that's where i I, yeah i mean it's a really compelling point
0: there's no no really you know there's there's arguments to both sides but i Yeah. yeah As a general matter, the court has been hostile to compelled speech. Yeah. And and while this case mm-hmm. presents facts that make it uh, more defensible maybe than some of the other ones do, uh, it, it fits a pattern that I think yeah. these five justices have adopted. And that is we're not going to put government words in private mouths anywhere where we don't absolutely have to.
3: Yeah. Is that a bridge to Janice?
0: It it is a bridge to Janice. But could we just do the Minnesota polling place uh, case? Because this Mm -hmm. was, we mentioned it earlier. Um, Minnesota has a state statute that you can't wear political apparel at a polling place. Um, Their position is they want orderly voting and that sort of thing. Uh, And the court uh, uh, dumped this. 7-2 Roberts, they took the position uh, that I think we all discussed, and that is the quintessential uh, political place is the poll. And uh, there are other laws. This is the reason I wanted to bring it up, even though it's a relatively minor case. Is one of the ways the court takes on speech cases is to say, is there a way to punish the problem without ending the speech? So if I wear something into a polling place that causes a disruption, why then I can be charged with disrupting the peace? Uh, This goes all the way back to RAV, burning the cross, right? You can do this on trespass. You can do it on property damage. So you don't have to get to the question of, do we stop the speech because we hate it? So Minnesota loses 7-2 here, uh, unpersuasive dissents uh, on, you know, order in the voting uh, booth. But uh, what I love about the case so much is uh, the T-shirt the guy's wearing, you remember, has Uh, Ask me for ID (laughs) on the shirt. And Minnesota treats that as a message that will ruin the capacity of people to vote uh, in their state. So Minnesota loses there. I'll I'll go to Janus, Masterpiece, and we're done. Uh, Janus uh, is going to turn out to be one of the two cases that has the biggest impact on American culture. Mm. Um, There are uh, at least 5.5 million people who are in uh, uh, situations where they are paying agency fees to unions um, or members of unions and may not uh, turn out to be anymore remember that this case involves the question of whether or not a person who declines to join a union can be compelled to pay an agency fee uh, to cover uh, essentially the argument is the union's cost of representing that person anyway um, the court said that you do not have to do so Unions see this as uh, public sector unions because it's a First Amendment case, see it as Armageddon. Um, There's a lot of evidence to suggest that that's not true. Um, There is no federal requirement to pay agency fees, but about a third of federal workers are in a union anyway. 28 states do not have agency fee laws, but they all have robust public sector unions. So while it's a big deal, uh, the idea that this is going to cripple unions or, or that unions are going to cease to be meaningful uh, in American life, I think is overwrought. But it's a very big deal case. 5-4, Alito wrote it, um, and it, and it turns on First Amendment grounds. Mm-hmm.
3: I, I worry I, I don't know I, I don't want to quibble with the legal interpretation but I do worry for the long term health of unions whether it does feel that legislation is pushing against them the courts are pushing against them sure. and, that's uh, implying that it's a bad thing though in a lot of situations
2: I, I think yeah. if the, the thought that I have with this coming down is and talking to people who are, are part of this scenario and have to pay into these unions to sign a contract or have a job pretty much is they while it's for collective bargaining in a lot of situations which i understand it seems like they're dependent on people regardless of their position paying into that for them yeah. to be sure relevant which should but not necessarily be
1: their primary focus in my so, opinion uh, but i mean those people also benefit from the collective bargaining that occurs on their behalf Yes, um, if 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 the unions were allowed to negotiate for union members and the other ones just didn't have, like, they had to fight on their own for their own raises, then um, it's, you know, it seems that, okay, that's a little more fair. The legal question that I come back to, or the thing that I kept thinking about this week, is the, the fact that in my mind there are a lot of similarities to the EPIC case. And the decision is very different because we talked about not having sympathy for the workers, right, who were told, if you want this job, you sign this mandatory, this binding arbitration clause. And if you don't want it, that, if you don't if you don't agree to that, then find another job. Your free speech, your speech comes in and that you can find a different job. Mm-hmm. But in this case, they're arguing very differently, which is this job comes with the, if you want to work at this place of employment, they are unionized. And being a part of that union means, you know, you join the union and you pay your fees. But what the court is saying here is, oh, you have the free speech to say, no, 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 I don't I don't accept that. But I still want the job. It, well, whereas the the epic case, we're saying if you don't get to pick and choose which parts of the job agreement you sign up for. So I, they're. It's a little different because Epic is the employer, and in there, this case, it's a the union. But right. but um, the the idea seems, I, I don't know.
0: I mean, I, anyway, I, I, it's a really important point. I, I do think that it makes a big difference that it's not the employer. Indeed, I suspect employers are greeting this uh, decision, right? Uh, or right. at least uh, state entities that have these sorts of union members are greeting this very favorably. Um, uh, the the second thing I I guess I'd say about it is that. Um, free riders versus First Amendment is the way Alito saw the case. And uh, his position was that whatever benefits a person might achieve uh, by free riding doesn't trump that person's First Amendment rights. And the reality is the union does get all of those benefits too. So they're not getting anything less than they otherwise would have other than the agency fees. And they're a lot. And that, that factored mm-hmm. into the decision. Janus pays 80% of what it would cost to be a member of the union in full good standing. And the argument is that that 80% is, is uh, there's, there's no advocacy component to that. It's just the collective bargaining. And all of the justices seemed at oral argument to say, well, wait a minute. First of all, how do you separate advocacy from uh, collective bargaining in a public sector union context, right? This isn't the UAW and Ford; it's Oak Park and uh, AFSCME or somebody like that. And second, even if you could parcel out those things in an intelligent way, um, why would we let the First Amendment trump uh, uh, your, or why would we let free riding mm-hmm. trump the First Amendment? And Alito says we can't. Hmm.
3: Interesting. Yeah. And finally we had
0: masterpiece masterpiece. Yeah. Uh, it comes full circle back to judicial modesty. Um, a lot of people hoped that masterpiece would be a a case. The court could give, uh, a, a sort of full throated endorsement of conscience rights or on the other side of the right of the state to compel service. Uh, it didn't do that. What it did was to focus on the Colorado commission and its hostility to religion. Um, There isn't any thoughtful person on earth that thinks the Colorado Commission wasn't hostile to religion, and uh, that's part of what makes this case easy for the court to decide and to decide narrowly. Now, the interesting thing is that the Arlene's Flowers case was sent back down to see whether or not uh, the masterpiece analysis—that is, did did she get bad treatment from a commission. It doesn't look like the sort of religious animus. I and mean, for goodness sakes, the Colorado Commission had a guy calling Christians Nazis or something mm-hmm. like that on it. It was, it was so overt, so ugly, um, that it was in some ways easy for the court to do this. Arlene's Flowers is coming back in all likelihood, and that's going to be the one where because there isn't commission animus, they'll have to look at the substance of the law. And and it seems to me in some ways that's going to be the really important case when it gets there, maybe next year.
3: It's interesting. I was surprised mm-hmm. they. I mean, they sort of punted on this mm-hmm. one. It felt like mm-hmm. they had a chance to really weigh in on it, and mm-hmm. I, I, I'm curious what was, what was driving their decision not mm-hmm. to, to use this one, because mm-hmm. uh, they decided to take this case, and they probably uh-huh. knew some of that information early on.
0: Well, I, I think two things. Um, this is Justice Kennedy writing, uh, remember, in um, 7-2, uh, Kennedy, is, is the court's libertarian. And I think maybe he knew he was retiring and was eager at least to say on the record uh, that government has to respect religion. Mm-hmm. And, and there's very strong language in Masterpiece about tolerance goes both ways. And uh, that's always been Kennedy's hallmark, that you can't ask for tolerance if you won't give it. And uh, while he could have tried to extend that beyond just the commission didn't show it and everybody has to all the time, uh, I That's not his style. Mm-hmm. He decides the case in front of him, and here it was easy to do relative to the commission. But I think Kennedy had his chance to say, um, here's what I think of tolerance, and here's what I hope future courts will think of tolerance. This one song. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah.
3: This was good. It was good. Should we, should we, we had a, we had a few beers should we talk about? Yeah, it qu- yeah, really <laughs> quickly quickly. Okay. Yeah. Well, Tom, you want to describe the first beer you brought?
0: Yes, my travels took me south uh, the week after commencement. As I passed through Louisville, I stopped at the Against the Grain Brewery. Uh, That's a a name of a brewery that, of course, is near and dear to my heart, even though I've never been there as a guy that runs against the grain. Our first beer was called Listening Party, which felt to me as I sat there in Louisville like the perfect podcast beer. Um, It's a kind of a hoppy APA. Uh, I thought it was quite good. Uh, yeah, crisp uh, and very crisp. and mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm.
3: Not, not overly yeah. Uh, heavy in terms yeah. of. Sometimes pretty carbonated. Yes, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. which I liked. Yeah. yeah,
0: a regular old listening party. There you go. <laughs>
3: it was good, good choice. <laughs> so our second beer was from Alter Brewery, which is here uh, close to us in Downers Grove, Grove, and we had it's called a Day Sipper, mm-hmm. uh, Pilsner very very again drinkable I don't know what did you guys think <laughs> yeah I liked it a lot yeah mm-hmm. I like everything altar ah, they do it they do a nice job yeah. I, yeah, they I really f- do
2: i like they were kind of similar that one didn't have quite as much of a bite to that's it right. yes which I guess would yeah. help. But, that it was but pilsners
3: are getting better though they are, I mean huh? they really oh, they way more shit. complex yeah this was uh, <laughs> this was good
2: absolutely Oh, um yeah this is great thanks Tom. thanks Tom
0: oh good didn't Phil have a beer oh Phil I yeah. did I'm sorry you jerks. I saw you Sorry. drinking water bottle. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, Just I had something from down.
1: rising tide, uh, brewing company, which is out of Portland, Maine. And they have a main Island trail ale, um, which is, uh, it was, it's described as crisp and hoppy American session. Ale. I've said it. I mean, it was, it, it's the type of beer I've been enjoying lately. It's, it's hoppy, but it's not heavy. It's light. It's, it's a, it's a, a grass mowing beer, which Nick Love makes it. fun of us for, but it's no, a, those are the a,
2: best. best. Still going to make fun of you for then. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, this was really good. Uh, if you guys weren't here for the beginning of the episode, I said this is the second episode that we're putting out this week. Um, Tom is also on the first episode, which was released on Wednesday. Um, so definitely check that out. Um, we'll have more beers and immigration talk and a bunch of other things to, uh, to listen to. Uh, if you like the podcast or want to share it or have questions or comments or anything like that, follow us on facebook at barstool politics twitter at barstool paul p-o-l uh beers that we try uh you can find on the untapped app on ios and android uh the podcast find on soundcloud and stitcher and google play music and most major podcasting platforms uh and then share us and definitely review us on itunes um we've gotten some really good ones lately um so we appreciate that thanks to the fans yes appreciate that you guys you're, you're, all, you're all real good um Anything else, Tom? Final closing thoughts? No. Thanks for having me. Guys? No. Cheers. Cheers. Great. See ya.